Uh, we're finishing up John chapter 17 today. It's uh, the 26 verses in that chapter is Jesus praying for well, himself for a few verses and then for basically his disciples and us the rest of the time as he's preparing to leave horribly the next day on the cross. Um, so to get started, I just wanted to think for a second about all the people that you deal with in your life. How are you doing getting along with them? For some of you, I bet you'd go, well, awesome, I get along with everybody. Others of you might say, well, I don't know, pretty good, pretty good. I get along with most people, a lot of people, fairly easy to get along with people. But there are some people who are not so easy to get along with. And if you've been in church much, you've also discovered that there are some Christians not easy to get along with either. Some Christians are difficult to get along with. Here's the rub. At one point in time in the future, you're going to be in heaven with all of them. You ever think about it that way? Sometimes I'll think about that. No, I don't think about any of you this way, but I've had some experiences that were painful enough in church that I'm thinking, hmm, I'm not sure I'm too excited about being with that person forever and ever and ever and ever in heaven. But the truth is that most of us, I think all of us, have our own little baggage we carry around. We have our own idiosyncrasies. We have our own ways, and some of those ways rub up against the ways and idiosyncrasies of other people, even in the body of Christ. And in this final part of Jesus' prayer that we're about to look at, he prays for not only the disciples he's got in front of him, those 11 guys, but future believers. And one of the things that he prays for that we would experience is unity, that there would be a lot of getting along with each other. And as Jesus is praying for this, we might go, oh, that's awesome. He's praying for that. That said, sometimes the unity is there and sometimes it's not. But it's what he prays for. So here is Jesus praying in verses 20 to 26 as we close out the chapter. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, these 11, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, <coughs> that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So three things I want to draw out of this passage. The last time Jesus is actually speaking really to his disciples, they're in earshot, right? 
we want to look at the scope of Jesus' prayer. We want to look at what Jesus says substantively. And then we kind of want to sum up some things he says at the end that are pretty important. So the scope. Who's he praying for? Well, let's look at it from wide to narrow. General to specific. He's generally praying for believers, Christians. It's a prayer for followers, for disciples. Go back with me to verse 9 for just a second. And notice what he says there. Kind of the same prayer, kind of given at the same time, same passage, same, verse, same chapter. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but those who you have given me, for they are yours. You know that, as far as I can tell, Jesus only prayed for the world one time. At least we only have one time recorded in Scripture that he prayed for the world. And that one time was when he was on the cross. That's when he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. That's the only time we have recorded in Scripture where he prays for the world. And here specifically, he says, look, I don't pray for them. I don't pray for the world. I'm praying for my followers. That doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't love the world. He's actually going to give his life for the world tomorrow. But God still loved the world. He gave his only begotten son, who did, as we said, give the ultimate sacrifice. He died for the sins of the world. I wonder whether he's leaving the praying for the world to us. I'll pray for you, he says, but how about you guys pray for the world? You're going to be in the world. You're not going to be of it, but you're going to be in it. We kind of see this from Paul saying this to Timothy in 1 Timothy. He says this, Paul says to Timothy, he's, uh, his, uh, he's been the mentor of, P- of Timothy. He says, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful life, a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So, generally speaking, Jesus is praying for believers really down through history. Why? Because they are the ones unleashed to pray for, testify to the world about Jesus. And here specifically, Jesus is praying for the second and third and fourth and infinity and beyond generations of believers. Notice he says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, not just the 11 that are sitting there, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, and that would include us. It's like Jesus is standing on a balcony, taking in the uh, sort of eternal perspective, peering down through the corridors of time, knowing what these followers of his are seeing and hearing and experiencing as they go through their Christian life here on earth. (coughs) He sees what some of them that he's with right now are going to pin under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that will become part of God's word to us. He knows they will preach. He knows they will write. He knows that others will be affected through their testimony. We have to include the Gospel of Matthew, who's following Jesus right now. We have to think about the Gospel of John, which we're actually teaching through right now. We have to think about the revelation of John and how those things end up in time. We probably have to think about the Gospel of Mark. We have the, most people believe that Peter's the one that actually gave Mark the story, who wrote it down. But I'm sure that these disciples have no idea just how much their lives, their preaching, their writings, their teachings would make in, in the world. But Jesus sort of anticipates it. Talk about impact through the generations. Do you realize that there are more Christians 
alive on earth today than there were people who were alive on the earth 2,000 years ago. Scientists basically say 2,000 years ago, estimate is that there were 300 million people on the planet. Today, according to Christianity Today, in their latest statistics, they say there are 2.6 billion Christians on the earth. Now, you can argue with it and say, well, they're probably not all true believers. Maybe they're just no name only. But the point is that those people who have been impacted and influenced by the original testimony, the writings, the preaching of those original disciples about Jesus, it's pretty enormous, as is the impact of all generations that had followed them. It's a little bit mind-blowing when you think about it. So you and I have to ask ourselves, okay, we're Christians. We have received the testimony from these guys, passed down through the generations. What are we going to do with it? Well, I think we're also supposed to pass it down. That's the principle. Jesus says, those who believe, notice, they will believe through their word. Through their word, these words, through the agency of their communication with others. Whatever they write, whatever they speak, that's their communication. People are going to believe based on that. Now, these disciples evidentially pictured the, the truth of the gospel like kind of holding a baton in a, a relay race. So here's Peter. He's running. Here's John. He's running. Here's the other disciples. They're all in. They've all got a baton. It's the truth. And they're passing it on to other runners. And they're telling that runner, you, you run your lap, or your laps. You pass it on to somebody else. And then you tell that person to pass it on to somebody else. Now, if you have followed the sad travails of the U.S. sprint teams of late, you may find this. On paper, they're typically the fastest team on earth. But they lack, typically, in baton passing skills. They apparently don't work on that skill enough, simply relying on their blazing speed alone. As a result, in key events, world worlds, Olympics, slower teams who don't get disqualified for dropping the baton or passing the baton too early or too late beat them. It was an interesting story that began in 1856. A Sunday school teacher was led to share the gospel with a young shoe salesman that had sold him a pair of shoes. The guy's name was D.L. Moody, who then became a great preacher. He led a fellow by the name of Frederick Meyer to Jesus, who also became a great preacher. The story continued through the decades, eventually leading to a fellow by the name of Mordecai Ham, who was leading a revival, and led a young, lanky kid by the name of, you might have heard of him, Billy Graham, to Jesus, who then shared the gospel maybe with more people on earth than anyone so far. Well, that's how evangelism takes place. One person telling another person who will end up telling another person. So the big question we need to ask ourselves is this. Okay, I have got this truth. I have received this truth. I've got this baton. What am I going to do with it? Am I going to study it? Okay, good start. Am I going to analyze it? Yeah, that's good too. But at some point, we need to hand it off. Give it away. Pass it on, right? And you're passing it on to people who are in the world, people who don't believe. Jesus anticipates those believers, including ourselves, will do that, and that Christians in every generation will take up the mantle of responsibility for passing it on. That's the scope of this prayer. So let's look at the substance. What's he praying for exactly? 
Well, two things, pretty simple. He's praying for something now and praying for something later. He's praying for present unity. That's now. He's praying for future glory. That's later. Look back with me at verses 21 to 23 because I want you to notice something. Jesus says this, that they all may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfectly one. So here's what I take from this. Jesus is praying that the kind of unity that we will have with each other is the same kind of unity that the Father and Son share. That our unity is to be modeled after and enabled by the Godhead himself, the Father, Son, and Spirit. Which should make us go, are you kidding me? (laughs) Are you kidding me? We're really supposed to be able to have unity like the Father and Son have? Was that prayer being answered? Is there any kind of unity among us? Or that kind of unity? I mean, we're sometimes a little bit embarrassed when we think about church history. Embarrassed with biblical church history, really, if we think about it. I mean, did these disciples themselves, did they always get along with each other? If you've been reading your Bibles, if you've actually been following us in this study of the Gospel of John, do you find that they always get along? Answer, capital no. Did they ever argue with each other? Answer, yes. Do you recall that this very night that we're studying, Passover night, they have been arguing about which of them is going to be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom. That very night. I'm going to be the greatest. No, dude, I'm going to be the greatest. And they just kept going back and forth. In fact, not too long ago, James and John had their mama come and ask Jesus if her two boys could sit on his right and left hand in the kingdom. (coughs) When the other guys found out, a brawl nearly broke out. They didn't always get along. Fast forward into church history. We understand that that's not only the case there in the early church, in the disciples, but in the church. Did the first church in Jerusalem, did they always get along with each other? No, they didn't. In Acts chapter 15, you can read about it. Huge hullabaloo on the issue of whether salvation can come from works or just through faith in God's grace. A lot of big people were Gentiles coming to Christ, receiving the Holy Spirit. Oh, yeah, that's okay. You can do that, but you've got to become Jewish. You've got to keep all the Jewish sacraments, all the Jewish laws. You've got to, you've, you've got to, the route to Christ is through Judaism. Pretty contentious. We fast forward a little bit in Galatians. There's a reference to a disagreement between Paul and Peter over how believing Jews should treat and deal with believing non-Jews. They're all Christians, but Peter was you know, a little bit nervous about eating with Jews, hanging out with Jews. He had been doing it, but then some... Uh, Jewish people came in and kind of got him, got him by the throat and said, okay, you shouldn't be hanging out with these Gentile people. Paul is, has to correct Peter. A little contention there. Forward a little bit more. Classic argument between Paul and Barnabas regarding, okay, here's what they're doing. They're going to go out and be missionaries. You'd think there'd be unity, right? No. Paul and Barnabas had, it came to blows almost. The argument was over whether to take John Mark with them. John Mark had gone out to the first missionary journey, but then he got, uh, somehow he just got, he left, he departed. And uh, Paul was uh, not going to forgive him for that yet. So the argument was so heated about whether to take John Mark or not, that they actually went their separate ways, right? 
And to add to that, all the disagreements to church history, all the splits, all the divisions, all the various denominations, all the fights. Listen, there was a church in my little town of Charlestown, just outside Louisville, Kentucky, on the, on the good side of the river, that split, literally, over the color of the new carpet. Heavy doctrine stuff. <laughs> crazy. That was just crazy. So we ask ourselves, is this prayer of Jesus being answered? So here's, I think, how we have to approach it. That we need to understand a little bit about what Jesus is talking about in terms of unity and what he doesn't mean by unity. We tell you what it doesn't mean, right? When Jesus says, I pray that they will all be one as we are, he's not talking about organizational unity. He doesn't have in his mind, I think, what some of us have in our minds, that if we could just get all the religious groups on earth together under one roof and just come to some big super spiritual organization out of it, that would do it. Listen, that ain't going to happen. It's never happened in church history. It will happen in heaven, but probably not down here. Let me give you the second thing I don't think Jesus is talking about when he talks about unity. He's not talking about uniformity. Uniformity isn't the same as unity. Uniformity is when we all decide, no matter what, we're going to agree on everything together. Is that ever going to happen? It it shouldn't happen, according to Winston Churchill. (laughs) Winston Churchill said this, if two people agree on everything, one of them is unnecessary. (laughs) We're not going to agree on every single point of doctrine, every little idea, every opinion. You and I will not always have the same opinion on everything. We won't all be alike. We won't all use the same version of the Bible. Like, we won't all like exactly the same songs. We won't agree on everything and every policy. I don't, think that's, I don't think that's what Jesus is actually talking about. What I think Jesus is talking about is something more like family relationships. Father, the son. Family. Would you say the people in your family are identical? Mom, dad, brothers, sisters? If you were in a family with multiple children, every kid the same? Of course not. Lots of different personalities. Lots of different likes. Lots of different dislikes. And yet, still in the same family. And if that family is successful, all the members in the family will love each other. So I don't think he's speaking about organizational unity. I think he's not speaking about uniformity. I think he's saying, Father... I'm praying the same kind of unity, the same kind of family ties we have, they would have. (coughs) So on one hand, this prayer has already been answered. It's done. We have that unity as genuine followers of Christ. At the very core, beneath all the other stuff that they might disagree on, there's going to be unity there. Christians across the generations are going to realize that if they're Christians, they are all saved by the same blood of the same Savior by God's grace, not by our works, and they'll agree on the very essentials of who Jesus is, who God is. There will be agreement on what really matters. On the other hand, there's an element where I think we are actually part of the answer, and we have to engage to be part of the answer. I want to show you that because I I think it's vital. Otherwise, we can just go around and around and around the mulberry bush. So I want to pop over to Galatians 3, starting in verse 26. Now, before we get there, let me just give you a little bit of helpful background. Paul is writing this to Galatia, the church in Galatia. The world at that time was very, very divided. They were divided male and female. Huge division, sociologically at that time. 
There was a division between slaves and those who were free. Even in Judaism, there were divisions. In the temple itself, there were divisions between male and female. You couldn't go to church together. Jew and Gentile, you could go so far. The court of the Gentiles, you tried to enter the, the place where the Jews would go, you would be killed. So it's a nice day, at the, nice day at church, right? Then Jesus comes along and saves people who are free. He saves people who are slaves. He saves men. He saves women. He saves Jews. He saves Gentiles. So this is what Paul writes to the Galatians as a result of what Jesus has done. For in Christ, Jesus, you are all sons, offspring of God, through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Not denying that there's men and women. It's just saying that in Christ, you're all unity. You have unity there. Now, that's unity, whether you know it or not. Whether you sometimes feel it or not. We are one, saved by the same person. The same act of a finished work of Jesus Christ on Calvary. It's done. Unity, in this sense, isn't something you and I have to produce. It is something that already exists. And there are lots of scriptures about this that I could share, but I'm not going to turn to them all. There's just one uh, from Ephesians I'll, I'll read. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 4. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were all called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now that's unity. That's what Jesus is praying for. And it really does exist through the finished work of Christ and the establishment by the Holy Spirit of the church that came along in the book of Acts. That said, I think unity is something that we are supposed to be a part of and work toward. How do I know that? Easy peasy. Because the same passage that we read in Ephesians that says there's one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. Let me tell you what it says just before that statement, leading into that statement. Let me listen to this. Paul said, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another, putting up with one another in love, in other words, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So that tells me, and I think it should tell us, that there's a part of this process of unity that you and I have to kind of be engaged in and try to keep working toward that unity being maintained. The fact of unity is one thing spiritually, but the experience of unity can be quite a different thing. Does that sound reasonable to you? You may be one with another brother or sister, but you're going to experience unity sort of like, I, th I think, sort of like a married couple, since Jesus mentions familial ties. So let's just talk husband and wife. They meet, they date, they get engaged, fall in love, they come to the altar. They say their vows, right? They're essentially what? They become one flesh. Two shall become one. Done deal. You're now one. You're united. There's unity. You're Mr. and Mrs. But then you've got to go home from the wedding, right? There's got to be a commitment in the marriage towards unity 
towards oneness, towards open communication, bearing their souls, sharing their hearts, spending time together, working at the marriage, submitting to each other. Because I've seen a whole lot of married couples. Though they are legally one, they don't appear to be one. And no one else observing them would say that they are one, that there's unity there. That legal unity on paper requires an effort to maintain and strengthen that unity. So go back with me to John chapter 17. We'll look at verse 21. I want to just so, see what unity is supposed to produce, what the outcome is supposed to be, why Jesus is so incredibly interested in this whole conversation of unity. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may be in us. And here's the part. It's cool. So that the world may believe that you sent me. You know what that tells me? Our unity as Christians proves the authenticity of what we actually preach. We live our lives before very watchful eyes. You know, I mean, you, you can do anything if you're in the world, and the world will give you a pass on a lot of things. But once you say, I follow Jesus Christ, I'm a Christian, the world looks at us differently. They treat us differently. They scrutinize us differently because they understand, amazing, they have amazing ability to understand what it is a Christian supposed to be, how a Christian is supposed to act, how a Christian is supposed to sound, how a Christian is supposed to behave. And how a Christian is supposed to uh, interact with the world. What they typically get is condemnation and judgment. And that's not impressive to them. All eyes are on us. And one of the things they wonder about is this. Can that Christian over there that I work with get along with me? Can they get along with even other Christians who work here in the office? And when they see all the fights and divisions that are in a lot of churches, all the arguments. They think, well, I don't need that. I can get that watching dramas on TV. Our unity provides some credibility that what we're doing, what we say we are, what we say we experience is actually genuine and authentic and real. Because it, it, unity is what, and the credibility from the unity is what leads those in the world to kind of sit up and take notice that something is going on here in these crazy people that might be just a little bit different from what I'm experiencing myself in the world. And it might become a little attractive to them. An old Puritan named Thomas Manton once said, division in the church builds bridges of atheism in the world. Doesn't account for all of it, but it certainly doesn't help. Heard a story that happened about 100 years ago in the United States. At that time, there were more, if you will, mental institutions in the United States than there used to be, uh, than, than we have now, I mean. This one guy visits a friend of his who's a guard in one of those institutions. His friend had the responsibility for personally supervising 100 of the patients, and he was doing it all by himself. The friend got a little nervous being in the, in the institution, so he asked his friend, does it bother you to have to guard so many patients? I mean, don't you ever worry that you're gonna, they're going to put their heads together and beat you up and escape? His friend said this, nope. The very reason they're here is because they can't get their heads together 
and work cooperatively on anything. <laughs> in light of what I'm reading here, and in light of what I just said by way of illustration to attempt to preach the gospel without unity, it's just insanity, right? Because the world is only going to notice the disunity. But Jesus said, the world will know that you sent me if we have that unity. So I think here's how to do it practically. You have some trouble getting along with somebody else, especially a Christian, I just say, keep it simple. Keep it simple. You should go and try to reconcile if there's hard words or people are upset or whatever. Make it right, right? Because we need to be able to ask for forgiveness when we screw up, right? No problem with that. But go and try to reconcile. Right? The solution is where there's this unity for you to get closer, however, to Jesus Christ. And for that other person to try to get closer to Jesus Christ too. And if you each do that, guess what's going to happen? you will find that you're going to get closer. As you get closer to Jesus, you're going to get closer to each other. Because some of the barriers will just fall down. Again, I don't want to make it too simplistic, but it's pretty simple. If you just make it all about Jesus, make it all about what does Jesus want, what does Jesus want me to do, what is Jesus thinking about here, what does Jesus want to happen here as we Christians are duking it out, we're going to find probably there's just some common ground that we can agree to. That makes it a lot easier to get along. That's the whole concept, really, of what Jesus would do, right? Get close to him, and you're going to find a lot of those differences just tend to melt away. They, might not, they may not just appear, but not, they might not be problems anymore, right? Because they're going to melt away before the things that are true and essential. So the scope of the prayers for believers, the substance of the prayers for our present unity, and then there's this promise of future glory. Let me just kick that around for a minute. Another part of the request, it's in uh, checkout 24, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be, one, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Well, where's Jesus going? We know where he's going. He's told him several times, which means he's told us several times. He's going to heaven, to his Father's house, as he called it, to his Father's right hand in glory. Jesus wants his followers to be able to behold the glory he has with the Father, the Father has given him. You know what's precious to me about this as I read this and studied it? I mean, so often we Christians speak about, oh, heaven's going to be so wonderful, it's so awesome, unless we think that we're going to be sitting on a cloud playing a harp. Uh, then we think, okay, I'm not sure I want to spend eternity doing that. I might want to listen to Karen play, but I'm not sure I'm going to want to learn how to play harp. Okay. And, uh, but, you know, a lot of times as Christians, as we get older and older, we get more and more interested in being there. Every time I talk with Paul Gardner, he and I speak quite frequently, he just speaks of a desire, a readiness to head home. I mean, he's not, he's not anxious to die, but he's just like, okay, I'm, I'll be re I'm ready. I mean, if it happens tomorrow, I'm ready. Given what awaits us there, I reckon we should have a desire for it, a desire to see Jesus. But here's what I thought was stunning in this passage. Do you realize that Jesus has an actual desire to see you and me in heaven. That's his request. I pray that they whom you've given me will be with me. Isn't that amazing? Knowing you, knowing me, especially knowing me, <laughs> that's staggering. It's hard to digest that he's praying for my arrival and anticipating it and looking forward to it. That's on the heart of Jesus to pray for us, being with him forever. Now, you might ask a question at this point and go, well, what does that have to do with unity? Well, it might just sound like Jesus is just sort of throwing up a request. I want them all to be one. 
Yeah, and I want them to be one over and over. He says it a lot in this little paragraph, this little section we read. And by the way, I want to see him in heaven, okay? But I don't think Jesus ever threw a throwaway sentence out there, do you? I think of it this way. Heaven has everything to do with unity. It's when Christians are going to cease to think about where we're headed and all the troubles that we experience down here on earth. That's where we become divisive and self-centered down here. Right? It's all about me, all about my world here, and all about my needs, all about somebody who said something to hurt my feelings. But when we think about being together in heaven, where there will be an eternal unity with us, maybe we could try maybe just a little bit harder to get along down here. So I see it as something very complementary one to another. Though he prays for future glory, what a glorious day that will be, Right? And in the presence of God, all the division, all the differences will be gone and unity will be extraordinary. We've seen the scope, we've seen the substance, and Jesus kind of sums it up with a couple things. He talks about what my followers know and what my followers are going to do. Let's look at verse 25. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. Right here in other places, Jesus insists that people in this world do not know the truth. And you realize that, I think, the last stats I saw said that everything, there's 97%, 97% of everything that is knowable from the creation of mankind or whatever is actually available today. Everything in the history of the world that has ever been knowable, 97% of it is basically available at our fingertips. And with all that knowledge, there's one thing the world at large does not know, the truth about God and how to get to heaven. But Jesus insists they don't know it. The world doesn't know it, but he says, my followers do. I want to turn to one more scripture in 1 John. And we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Stop right there. It's sort of an arrogant statement, if it weren't true. But if it is true, it's not particularly arrogant. If, in fact, the world around us doesn't know the truth, but we do, and essentially if the world is lying under the sway of the evil one, but we happen to know God, if that's really true, and Jesus says it's true, so I tend to go with Jesus as a credible source. And it says, the world doesn't know you, but I know you, and they know that you've sent me. John continues in verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, and in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So that's what we know. We know the truth. We know God. We know life. We, he said this is what we're to do with what we know. We know stuff that the world doesn't know. This is part of the prayer. I have made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that here, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So think about those words. Because you know the truth. Because you know God. Because you have known, not just known, but experienced God's love. And because God's love is now residing in you, here's what you are to do. Love. You love. You, you, you show love. If Jesus is praying that the love that exists between the God, God the Father and Jesus is to be in us also, do you think that 
the Father answered that prayer in the affirmative? Yeah, I do, which means that you and I have been given, because of this prayer that Jesus luttered, an unlimited capacity to love. You love God, and you love his son, you love his kids, other believers, and you are to have and exercise this incredible, amazing capacity of love that God has put in you to deliver. Why? Because God has loved them enough to send his son to die for that world that doesn't know him. Maybe you've discovered that it's easier to love people in theory than practically. Maybe we're too often a little bit like Linus. I love mankind. It's people I hate. (laughs) People I can't stand. If we actually have the capacity prayed for by Jesus to give to us, by God, to be able to love the world, how about we just pray as we take communion that we might actually commit to better exercising it. Maybe by being willing to share the truth, the gospel, that the world doesn't know. So as I'm praying us out of this message, we go ahead and bring communion up and we'll take it. God, thank you for your word. Thanks for this <coughs> amazing chapter of prayer. It, it, here's what's amazing to me. You know what you're going to face physically and spiritually, being separated from God as you go to the cross, as he sees that you're weighing down by all the payment for the sin of the world. And yet, it's amazing. You don't spend a lot of time in this prayer whining and complaining all about, what was me? You're thinking about others. That's kind of love, isn't it? You loved us that much. Your focus was on us. How about we share that philosophy that our focus is less on us and more on loving our fellow Christians and loving the world around us? We come across them all the time. How can we demonstrate that love? How can we help out? How can we be a factor that people would say, you know, wait a minute, something going on here that I don't get. I do not understand why you're like this, why you're doing this for me, why you are helping me out, why you are praying for me. I I don't don't get it. Help us, given the calling you've given each of us, or we wouldn't be here as Christians. What is it you want us to do? To give the world something that looks like love from our hands, our feet, our lips. And we ask you to do it, something amazing, even in communion, as we take it, touch us, change us. And it's all for your sake, and for our sake, ultimately, that we pray this. Amen.